0: Welcome to episode 4 of Coming Up Next. (laughs) Today's guest has just finished being Ian Molly Meldrum. He is the world's most determined unicyclist, the leading man from the secret life of us and the former voice of a generation of double whoppers is a very good friend of mine. Sitting opposite me today is Samuel Johnson. Uh, Sam and I reminisce about our time together on the road for his breast cancer unicycle quest, Love Your Sister. Uh, we also talk about the value of having a mission in life and that heaven may in fact be on this little blue dot that we call Earth. If you'd like any more information on Love Your Sister or to support the cause, head to www.loveyoursister.org I'll post a link to the uh, documentary that we made for Network 10 on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash c-u-n-p-o-d-c-a-s-t And that's the end of the plug. I guess it's really just lessons learned in life sort of thing i'll just go with the flow
1: (laughs) do the old bounce around
0: yeah i mean i don't really I, i do a little bit of like writing out sort of points but i don't really plan very much yeah um just kind of see what happens
1: informal is that like a euphemism for unprepared (laughs)
0: yeah i think so (laughs) i found a way to make my laziness uh... podcasts
1: aren't meant to be too structured are they
0: i don't think so no i started listening to one called you made it weird with pete holmes and he's an american comedian and he's done i basically copied the format of what he's done except he's a comedian so he's much funnier than i am yeah um and he's he started out getting a whole lot of his comedian mates in to talk about what makes them weird in inverted commas yeah and uh the flow on effect from that was that he started getting writers in and directors in and yeah um, there was one that he did with Deepak Chopra yeah I was listening to one today which was with a a a reverend or a priest or something yeah Um, it's quite fascinating so it's just really you know um, as I become more reflective I'm starting to wonder what it is about you know other people that makes them do what they do and yeah. especially people that have had influence and impact on my life like you yeah. and, and Michaela and Nato. Yeah. So this is episode is episode four? Correct. This is episode four of uh Coming Up Next is the name of the podcast and the first couple of minutes of the episode with Michaela were um, spent trying to figure out how we could work in today or tomorrow or Tuesday into the title so that the acronym would be... Um. <laughs> somewhat dirty um today i've got a very good and old friend of mine samuel johnson with me to talk about uh you know life as an actor and a a world record holder i suppose um sam and i met in 2007 uh on a short film i was making when i was in my final year at film school and um Our friendship started out slowly. Um, He loved telling me that I was a slow burner (laughs) into (laughs) into his life, Um, and uh, you know we've we've worked on a lot of projects together. I was actually um, doing. I got asked to do a talk at a careers day at my high school um, on Tuesday. And I was, I was writing my speech about what it is, you know, what, what my experience of working in the film industry has been. And I kind of started clocking things by project and realized just how much you have actually influenced my career and my life and the kind of chain reaction that meeting you and Sarah set off on my professional career. Um, I guess the the biggest thing that we've worked on together was um, was Love Your Sister and and being on the road together in that environment for... Uh, I guess, what was it, It about nine consecutive months, um, but being in each other's pockets for three plus years on that, and the um, the triumphs and tribulations that we shared as a creative duo. Um, So thank you for coming in and chewing the fat with me. My absolute pleasure, Alistair. You've just come off being Molly Meldrum.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, Channel seven have commissioned a you know, a two part extravaganza. Um, in the in the same kind of vein as uh the in excess story that was played last year. Uh this time around they're focusing on uh, Molly Meldrum and I was enough uh, lucky enough to look enough like him and to uh and to know Molly and to ultimately score the gig.
0: Yeah is there any sort of residue of molly still in your life
1: yeah totally i'm finding him really hard to purge i've I, I, as an actor i've played within kind of five or so degrees of myself for more than two decades so it's rare that i get asked to kind of make departures such as this mm. um so um yeah i had to kind of i had to do a, a lot of work uh, on my vocal and on my body and um a lot of archival work, a lot of time with Molly, and a lot of script work as well. Um, and Molly became kind of so entrenched that um, when I finished the job, I, I didn't know how I'd purge him. Um, so you know, rather than go to the gym and kind of exercise too hard and try and sweat him out, I, I kind of I, res, I resorted to a range of nefarious and illicit means to try and uh to try and rid myself of him I found that that didn't work so <laughs> a, a, a new approach uh kind of is required uh, but yeah no very hard to get very hard to get rid of him it's um you spend that many hours a day with him and yeah you, you, you know you end up dreaming as him and, uh, and then it's all over and you've got to move on to the next thing, which in my case was a character called Ethan Kane, who makes a bet with his friends to sleep with a stranger every year for the, every week for the next year. So now I've got to play a Gen Y kind of, um, kind of sex hunter. Um, so
0: very polarizing.
1: Yeah. It's, it's hard when there's no time between gigs cause, um, yeah, there's, there's overlay.
0: Um, if they just uh, as a side note, if there's anything that you don't want to talk about or you no, want to talk all. about and you can't anywhere. Yeah. Uh, oh, just as a side note. Yeah. Um, not that I'm really gonna ask me about
1: the freckle located really, really kind of near to my, anyway.
0: Well, that's public knowledge already. So
1: yeah. Well, it's freckle on freckle.
0: Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Double freckle. Nick's yeah. got one of those actually.
1: Yeah. I know. I showed him how. <laughs> That's why he doesn't wear pants. Uh, just because he's he just hopes that, I don't know he just hopes that one day more people will know that he's freckle on freckle.
0: He 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 does say to me, Al, please this week can you tell the guests that <laughs> they don't have to wear pants because <laughs> I'm feeling quite liberated in my <laughs> pantsless producing, but. <laughs> I just don't want other people to feel self-conscious. I don't know, should I have warned you that he wasn't about this?
1: Um, I, I I suspected that it might happen. Uh-huh. Um, I've met him a couple of times and he seems to be a bit like that. Uh, my, my, worst can, uh, my worst fears have been confirmed, um, but that's okay. It all makes sense now because whenever I've asked him for the time in the past, he's always gone a hair past a freckle freckle. And now I'm looking at him with his pants just not there and... His his manhood just kind of laying barren, kind of peacefully.
0: How do you get pubescent tumbleweed?
1: Well, clearly he works hard on it. It's not something that you could just achieve. No. I, I'd suggest a week without showering would put you, you know, would get you along the right direction. A bit of crimping. Yeah. Oh, look, it might work for some. You never know. <laughs>
0: um. So going back to. <laughs> you're uh you're acting um and just uh setting molly aside for a minute i was looking i mean i know you pretty well we yeah know, we kind of know each other inside out to a yep. degree totally um but you know i thought i'd do a little bit of um what one might call research yeah um so i looked on the wikipedia oh yeah i used my google machine yeah yeah and um I did know that uh, you, you had your first acting gig when you were 14 yeah. uh, at Wesley. And I did remember that from that you managed to get an agent from yeah. like, it was like the, the, the moment go. Um, but I don't think I knew that and I don't know if this is accurate or not. But it said that on there after you got that, um, after you got the agent, you started getting gigs that you actually supported your family. Um, and put your, did you put Connie through school as well? Or was that contributing to that um, things? Oh, look,
1: you know, dad had kind of loaned money off me uh, and I'd never get it back. So I don't know whether that means I supported my family. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was out earning dad at 15. So yeah, it was all through this kind of just mad confluence of events at high school.
0: Could you run me through the events?
1: <laughs> yeah, look, the first, I was at a, I was at my tenth school, um, trying to ingratiate myself um, upon some people there. Uh, I was trying to make friends, and I was walking across their very plush oval there at, at Wesley College, my first private school after nine state schools. And we were walking across their manicured lawn, um, you know, towards wherever. And there was Andre. I remember his name was Andre. He was this kind of blonde, rich kid um um I don't know he had a bit of strut about him he was a natural leader he had his kind of little posse that followed him around so I just attached myself to his posse and he looked at me uh, I remember it really clearly and said so are you auditioning for the school play I'd never heard of it and didn't know what it was and I just shot back yeah man of course and I thought right they're into the play you know if I audition for the play then I might be able to stay in with those guys and I knew that I wasn't going to fit in with the jocks because they had these these perfect human specimens that were the athletes. Mm. It was the first school I'd been to that had those kind of jock types that looked like they'll end up playing AFL. Mm. And I think Michael Klim was kind of doing practice laps in the pool every day. And, you know, it was a very elite school. Yeah. Um, And I was just a a grubby little cunt from the fucking suburbs, really, like, um, to be honest. Uh, My dad had saved up for me and my sister to go to that school since we were kids. He would booked us in when we were three. And by the time it got to, uh, for, uh, time for us to go to VCE there, he had enough money for one kid for one term. So he had $2,000 saved. So dad chose me to go to the private school, even though my sister had a much better academic record. And this is Connie or Hilda? Yeah, Connie, my sister, who ended up getting all those cancers. She didn't get to go to the private school either, you know um and Mm -hmm. so i ended up at this school and auditioned for this play and it was for the pink panther strikes again and i got the role and i had to play the mad scientist and you know show night came i'd never been on a stage before i'd never acted before i'd never wanted to be an actor um i'd only done it to get in with andre and his gang and i found the whole kind of situation awesome you know i was making new friends and then the feeling of being on stage and getting my first laugh i'll never forget Um, so I went home after the first time I ever did a play, I went home and, you know, told dad how great it was and tried to go to bed, but I couldn't sleep at the time. I didn't know that you can't sleep straight after a show and that it takes a couple of hours to wind down. So I'm just lying there restless as in bed going, wow, this is better than tennis. And tennis was the other, you know, was the thing I'd found that I loved the most up until that point. And, um, at, at about midnight, my dad, the phone rings, which is unusual at that time, pre-mobiles. Dad comes in in his undies and said, says, there's a woman called Rhonda on the phone for you. I don't even know anyone called Rhonda, least of all, let alone get calls at midnight. And I said, hello. And she said, hello, it's Rhonda Skepsi here. Little, little, little did I know she was the ex-wife of the very famous Australian director Fred Skepsi. And, of course, their their, um, kid Zoe goes to that elite school. She said, oh, I'm a producer and I'm producing in an ad for Dishlex Dishwashers. Would you like to audition? And I literally said this. I said, don't you have to be good-looking to be on (laughs) telly? And she laughed and said, we'll see. I went and auditioned for it. I had to say, I told Mum that a Dishlex was the greatest labour saver ever invented. She's saving 500 hours washing up every year. Of course, the fact that I'm saving time drying up didn't even enter my mind. A quick 15-seconder for Dish Lex to play before the weather because they were sponsoring the weather on the Channel 9 News. I got the job. They paid me 1500 bucks, which was enough to cover my next school term. And um, as soon as I finished the shoot, she drove me to an agency, got me an agent, drove me to the union, told them to give me a fucking card now. Uh, and I got home that day with the next school term's fees paid. Uh, an agent, a union card and I was ready to go and I think I got the first 20 auditions I got given and, and before you know it, I was a working child actor and no longer having to busk on weekends to pay my school fees.
0: Mm. That's quite a that's quite a track record to uh, get your first 20 from 20. Oh, there's a lot that's of work around
1: for kids at that age and not many kids doing it, so... Mm. It's you know, it's not it's not like not like not like Mayweather Mayweather's first twenty wins or anything. You yeah. know?
0: <laughs> well you could you could have been the Mayweather of child actors. Oh mate, yeah,
1: yeah. The shadow of the dream of the remembrance of Mayweather.
0: <laughs> do you I mean, this is something that I've been that I'm quite interested in that I've asked everyone, um, yeah. do you remember the first time that you entertained people? I mean, you said that you remember getting your first laugh you'll never forget that feeling Mm. um but was there a point in time before that where maybe you know you entertained connie to cheer her up or hilda or um or your dad or something or someone in your family or friends or something and you and you got that first immediate reaction
1: yeah i remember it's just a typical middle class white kind of uh, memory yeah it's just doing the plays for dad um my sister was the boss so she'd direct and she'd write and she'd star in um and she'd make all the props and um design the set so i i was required just to be her lackey so i had to you know dress up and stuff but she'd take all the all the dialogue um so yeah (laughs) i was more like a prop with those things so um yeah we did all those little shows as kids
0: Mm. and you and you remember entertaining your dad
1: well not really uh i I remember trying to keep him interested
0: (laughs) i don't remember many
1: moments where he was like oh son you're so funny (laughs) Uh, i do remember going out on like when i before i went to the private school i do remember them having a variety show at, at the high school i was at previous and I could juggle and unicycle at that point. And I did go up on stage and I was allocated three minutes. I took 20. Um, and then I went home and I wrote a letter to the local paper. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> As if I was a... um as if I was a a local grandmother who'd gone in and seen the variety show and I I singled myself out as being the best performer of the night and the one with a really bright future. (laughs) Um, They printed it in the newspaper. It was the feature letter of the week and the heading was Juggler Johnson, inspirational. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I got to school after it had been published and everyone came out, up to me and was like, hey, did you see in the paper, mate? You've been mentioned in the paper. I was like, yeah, 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 I know. And they're like, awesome. And I was like, yeah, I wrote it. And they are like, bullshit. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I wrote it. i they like, you didn't. I was like, yeah, I thought it was really funny and they'd find it really funny too, but they felt betrayed more than anything. <laughs> I think I've still got that clipping. My first review written by me.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so I guess what was that? What was that feeling then like for you um, from that, you know, as a juggler and a unicyclist that kind of, you know, drives you through to going to audition for um, this, the Pink Panther show and then drives you to continue um, following acting as a child or was it, was it to do with a feeling or was it to do more with, it was something that was able to earn you money that could help your family?
2: It
1: was absolutely both al um you know I've said my whole career I just did it because it was a job and it was better than working and it was free money and all that kind of stuff, but i fucking loved it of course yeah of course I loved it i, I you know i um I'm old enough now to kind of you know to throw away the defensiveness about my love for the thing mm. um i i i think it's um it's something I really liked from a very young age um i I don't know why, I, I, I don't know, I just, I suppose I was an attention seeker, um, and I really, um, I really do enjoy it as much as I, I, I may have been reluctant to admit it over the years, it's, it, it is a great job, I like the collaborative nature of it, um, I like the creative nature of it, uh, I like the make, make-believe nature of it, but I also like the, the, the search for the truth angle. You know, I mean, it's um, truth's a very hard thing to define and it's so subjective. But at least with a character, you can find... Um, you can, I don't know, find a certain kind of truth.
0: Mm. Do you think there's something in... You know, you are saying before that up to the point where you did this show, it was tennis was the thing. And I think the crossover between tennis and acting is the very specific skill and focus that you need when you're on your game. Do you think that's something for you, that kind of, for, you know, a lack of better new agey term, that presence um, is something that, you know, really inspires you when you're in there doing the work?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, I like... Yeah, it's hard. They're both individual sports in a way. Um, I suppose acting is much more a team sport, but ultimately... <clears throat> um, Ultimately, you're on your own with that. I I'm not sure what inspires me about it. I I, I like to do things that don't annoy me, um, and that require for just shitloads of of focus and effort. Um, because about the only thing I'm good at is trying, and I'd rather try at something I'm interested in than than not. So, um. Yeah, look, I don't feel very focused. I feel quite ramshackle and shambolic mentally. And and it's my looseness of mind that requires me to find things to focus on. That doesn't make me focused as a person, quite unfocused as a person. I meet people who are focused and and I just want to give up trying anything ever um, for the thoroughness that they exhibit. So, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of, I'm at the, I'm at the stage now where I'm having to kind of, I'm starting to cater what I'm doing, um, to, um, according to the weaknesses in my mind as well, not just the strengths.
0: Do you think then that one of the reasons that you do love acting is because it allows you that focus? Um, particularly when you're on stage or in front of the camera.
1: Yeah, and it also allows me n- not to not have to deal with my own life or problems within it as well, so it's a great distraction.
0: Mm. Um, so you... I, find, I
1: find the characters that I play a, a little bit more interesting than me most of the time, so, so that helps.
0: Well, what do you then think of the um, idea that all the characters are just really a facet of you, that you're exploiting
1: yeah they are um yeah totally i mean the the characters come from within you totally um i don't substitute as an actor either you know this um yeah i don't know um sure they're all aspects of you but you're you're able to apply them according to somebody else and when you do that you you lose ownership of them and you, you know i see even though i access kind of um, the pit that is myself for the um, uh, for the ingredients that I need to make a character um, essentially it's about the character mm. um, and still a good distraction even though I'm tapping myself for want of a better expression
0: mm. um, think it was you that said to me very early on in our friendship um, that you are the sum total of your experiences Mm. Um, mm. And that's never more true than when you're creating or being yeah. creative.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and if you can start creating good experiences for yourself, then obviously your total score goes higher. Mm. So, you know, I mean, the sum total of a person's experience that has been stuck in, say, disadvantage, poverty, neglect, drug abuse, um, you know, uh, the sum total of their life will usually be um, an addition of kind of fairly, fairly negative experiences um i mean part of not being poor or not being disadvantaged in that way is that you get to kind of build up a richer body of experiences and kind of that's in that way socially at least the richer get richer and the poor get poorer um and that disadvantaged kid that i'm thinking of that lives around the corner from me in blackburn that um, has the cops over every second day, and he's both his you know, parents are on ice, and he's lucky to get through a day without seeing some kid throwing through the air. Well, you know, I mean, what's you know, what's he gonna build, and um, who knows? I don't know. It's pretty easy to build up um, a rich body of experiences if if you're taught how.
2: Mm.
0: Do you feel? I mean, you have a pretty rich body of experiences in sort of both spectrums um you know from a very early age do you feel like that has significantly impacted your creativity in the way that you do things
1: um no i was around some interesting stuff as a kid but i had a very stable childhood and a very safe home um so i think that's what you know in the end that's why i'm here talking to you Mm. Um, I think if sure, sure there kind of there's you know some drug history in my family and stuff, but we never had anyone in front of the kids scratching their face off or um, you know or nodding off or whatever. Um, so whilst it was around me and I've lived a great life. My my home life was actually really really stable. Mm. Um, I was able to get a you know dip a toe into both, but I mean I, I mean I never had a toe in privilege either uh, until I went to Wesley College as a fifteen year old, mm. um, and and took me se- now like later you know. in life I know a lot a lot, a lot uh, you know I never I never used to know anyone with money, and now I now I know broke people and I know people with money so. I don't even know what we're talking about. It's just kind of random, random thoughts. I don't it's know what we're talking side. about. Either. Yeah, it's all just following a random thought train. Yeah. Um, so no, it couldn't have defined me because I had too secure an upbringing. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like,
0: I suppose I didn't mean um, comparing like yourself to this child in Blackburn in, yeah. in, in terms of drugs and whatnot. But yeah. you know, growing up without a mum, yeah, and with Connie getting cancer, and you know these sorts of experiences. Um, that then kind of drive you into your adulthood um, and how that may influence your creativity and the way that you kind of bring people into your life.
1: Yeah, well, if you know, if you know what grief and loss is, you know, um, at a young age or if you know what kind of um, true kind of family hardship is at a young age, then, you know, as an actor when you're 16 and you're having to cry when you're watching your fictional dad walk away for the last time, then you've got something to access. So I can meet people that have supposedly been very lucky who have never had any bad things occur to them. But when, you know, when life hits and they end up going out into the big bad world, um, they're not necessarily more secure. Um if anything, they're more vulnerable in a way. Um, Yeah, I think, um, you know, I mean, we all carry our scars and our traumas. Some people choose to tend to those wounds and use them to characterise their, um, themselves into the future. And other people um, kind of ignore the wounds or pretend they're not there or don't deal with them. And um just generally speaking and you know I had a I had a really smart dad who taught me how to how to patch myself up and move on mm. so um, so yeah I feel like I feel like it was all worth something in the end because when it came to trying to you know trying to surmount seemingly kind of insurmountable challenges or when it came to kind of you know doing things well beyond that point where you're sick of doing them or when it when it or when it came to kind of tapping into some kind of um, deep emotionality um, for a role that you might be playing or for, for a movie that you might be writing um, it's all really helped me it's coloured me as a person I think they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger I don't think that's always true it makes a lot of people weaker um, but yeah what, what doesn't kill you makes some people stronger and in my case I'm one of those some people
0: I think if you're, uh, if, if you're open to it then grief and sorrow are the biggest teachers in life
1: oh bring them Bring 'em, yeah, that's what I'm here for., mm. not here to fucking slide up and down your fucking rainbow all day, <laughs> do you know what I mean, like, yeah, fairy floss and bubble gum and sugary shit and fucking I don't know it can it can all go suck itself, mm. all of that stuff. I don't like it, it bores me, it mm. tastes good, and then and then you got a sour taste in your mouth going, why did i buy that, you know. Let's talk about what it feels like to get smashed in the head with a blunt instrument, Mm. you know, or how exactly you felt, you know, the moment you were told that your fucking three-year-old daughter died. You know, I'm not saying I don't like fairy floss, but I just think there's too much of it in the world.
2: Mm.
0: That's funny because I feel like there's not enough of it in the world. Mm. Not fairy floss, but not, like, I'm not talking about superficial kind of yeah. Glazing over real life.
1: Yeah, I'd love to come to a party, like, and and people go, "How are you, man?" And I go, "Ah, oh, fuck, nephew tried to kill himself again on Wednesday." Hmm. Why can't I do that? Well, you could, but I guess it's not. No, but like to me, so that's a, that's leaving someone open for a joke. Mm. <clears throat> for me, that's kind of coming in, kind of I don't know, with something interesting. Yeah. Who's to say whether it happened or not? Hmm. You know, I can tell you right now, my nephew wasn't trying to kill himself last Wednesday, but I don't know. I've kind of always been that person that, that crosses those social lines and uses words that they shouldn't in places that they shouldn't and, you know, mm. and tries to talk about the ugly stuff.
0: Yeah, uh, look, I agree with you on that front. I certainly I've think... I've
1: toned that... down a lot though, haven't I? <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, well, I mean... One of the one of the things I admire the most about you, and I and I always have, is your resilience, and you know the the honesty with which you approach everything, um, even if it doesn't, you know, even if I'm on the other end of that. at No, oh,
1: you've cupped it worse than anyone, mate.
0: Well, I don't know. Maybe that's just made. Um, the potential for our relationship even even greater
1: oh, the only friends i've gotten i don't have many of the ones that can can tolerate and understand that kind of behavior mm. and you know you know all three of my friends uh, understand <laughs> that i just get like that sometimes and that it's not personal yeah yeah it's, well it's just a chemical imbalance in my brain mate so if people can if, if people can factor that in then we're a chance of friendship
0: mm. And I think it's taken me a while to really understand that and to, and to not take it personally. Mm. Um, and certainly in the last sort of six or eight months, I've been you know, doing a lot of sort of soul searching as this podcast has come about and really understanding that thing of not taking things personally. And I think that's a great thread actually in, back into what we were talking about before with being creative and and, um, and acting or filmmaking or making music or whatever because a person's reaction to that isn't personal. It's just the sum total of their experiences and their subjectivity or their subjective response to whatever it is that you're putting in front of them. Yet it's deeply personal. Yeah. Well, it's deeply personal (laughs) for them, but it's not, if they say they don't like it, it doesn't mean that they don't like you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they don't, they don't know you most of the time. And if they do know you and they don't like you, then I guess they're not worth your time. Really? Um, but yeah, you know, I've always had this great admiration for you um, and and for what you have gone through in your life and, and for where you are and for the person that you are. And, you know, I learned so much from you when we did Love Your Sister about um, being humble and being irreverent, not taking things too seriously, but also being deeply honest and um, and daring to dream big, you know, the best memories I have of doing Love Your Sister with you were when we would sit outside after you know a 12-hour day doing three fundraisers and just sit outside under the stars with a beer or something and, and, and dreaming about the future and all the possibilities. Um, I suppose this is a weird segue into talking about Love Your Sister and, um, and, and what it was really that was driving you to unicycle around the country um i've kind of skipped over a whole portion of your life but i guess we can come back to it later
1: it's fine man it's... um but you know again yeah, all of my portions are completely disposable <laughs>
0: <laughs> well you know i'm just it's my, my brain works in tangent so i'm just hooking into the one that's people don't now. know
1: but a lot of people might know, not know what you're talking about mate so... yeah that's
0: true i mean i've referenced it a couple of times in, yeah. in previous podcasts but to to set it up i guess Um, Sam uh, actually why don't you set it up I
1: can do it really quickly Yeah. Um, yeah I rode a one wheeler a unicycle around Australia at the behest of my dying sister who's dying of breast cancer in an effort to remind every young mum in the land to be breast aware. We wanted to raise a million dollars for the Garvin Research Foundation. We wanted to remind every mum in in the land to be breast aware and we wanted to break the world record for longest distance travelled on a unicycle. Alistair came with me every step of the way, filmed the whole fucking thing for for online and for Channel 10. And over the course of 364 days, we did 1,400 media calls, 450 community events, over 60 school. Visits um and covered sixteen thousand kilometers on the unicycle.
0: And not to mention that you did it rain, hail, or shine through all sorts of terrain through and all seasons. different altitudes. Yeah. Yeah. Um just the the first part of that I hadn't heard you say for a while. Mm. <laughs> I used mm. to hear you say that two or three times a day.
1: Yeah, well, you know, we were on message for for a whole year and mm. You guys had to hit and listen to me on loop, and, and uh, I suppose it was partly my job as well to listen to mums with cancer on loop, because mm-hmm. um, we just
0: about got to them all. Mm. And I mean, the actual unicycling part of it, you know, was um,
1: that was our part.
0: Yeah, that was. I just got fucking shivers down my spine. Mm-hmm. Um, that was our part, mm-hmm. and but again, you know, that comes back to this focused determination that we were talking about before Mm. and i guess where you exist outside of yourself you know you're on purpose you've got a mission yeah it's more important to you than you yeah Mm. which in some ways i guess when you're in a game of tennis Mm. you have that and in Mm. some ways when you're on stage or in front of the camera you Mm. have that yeah it's not about you yeah it's about your mission in that moment you
1: cut down to something pretty important i mean i like putting myself in a position where it's not about me because i don't particularly like myself mm. so um and if i spend too long with myself I, I, I tend to you know get a little bit depressed so it's it's good to um uh it's good to make that point and yeah and love your sister was a chance for me to maybe once and for all get over myself Mm. And focus on this other thing for the you know that's so all encompassing and so twenty four seven that um, that you know uh, yeah I mean the, the big motivation was definitely to hopefully get a rest from myself during that to get away from myself.
2: Mm.
0: I mean, before we break it down further, what is it if you don't mind my asking? Mm. What are the things about yourself that you like to get away from?
1: I just... No, it's not even that I don't like myself that much. I just find myself fairly boring compared to what's going on around me. So I just I just tend to find other people more interesting.
0: What would you like to see more of in yourself?
1: Um, I'd really like some consistency. Um, I, I, I'd like some consistency and I'd like to... Uh, uh, yeah I suppose it's a loose term, but I'd like to be more normal. I'd like I'd like to keep normal hours and 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 have a more normal life but uh, but at the same time, I wouldn't swap it. Mm. Yeah, I, I'd like to be more consistent for, to, for my loved ones. I'd like to uh, um, be there on a more regular basis for my family and friends rather than going hot and cold as I do.
2: Mm.
0: And certainly when we were doing love Your sister I mean, to that point in time we'd been mates for maybe five or six years. And or maybe even longer. Um, And, you know, whilst we knew each other kind of well, there was always kind of uh, a wall up in some way, um, which really got broken down, I think, while we were living in each other's pockets in a caravan, traveling around the country at 15 Ks an hour. You get to know each other. You certainly get to know Mm. each other. And this was, you know, the most incredible version of Samuel that I'd ever seen. Like, I felt like, um, here was the purse Here is a person that you know could actually do anything, um, and there's not many people like that around. And it was because I guess you had the focus and you had consistency, um, and we were working more traditional hours, I guess, in mm. a more normal kind of time frame. But within the abnormalities or the idiosyncrasies that you had, that I had, that Leighton has. And somehow we created this really oddly symbiotic kind of um, threesome.
1: We're a fucking great unit. Mm. I don't, you know, I mean, on those things, everything goes wrong. You know, relationships collapse. You go through kind of staff turnovers and, like, you know, people don't last. I mean, we're an incredibly testing situation. Um, you know, multiple men can find in a small um space you know traveling 10 to 15 k's an hour just literally inching your way across the country very slowly it's enough to drive most men mad um it was incredibly trying um i i think maybe even more so for you guys having been you know being stuck in that van i certainly know that most days i would have rather have been out in front of my unicycle, where at least I got to be outside and in the open air.
0: I felt like I had the best job in the world.
1: Yeah, right. Well, that's good because I can—I I don't know—really testing. I, um, I mean, so many benefits, so many gains, so many joys, and all that kind of stuff. But wow, it was a challenge. It really was.
0: Mm. Do you miss it?
1: Yeah, I miss the good bits. I don't, you know, I don't remember the bad bits really. I don't remember the challenging nature of it. I remember hurting here and there, but I've been quite selective with my memory of it. So I remember the camaraderie. Um, I remember those amazing mind-blowing moments where you, you know, those once-in-a-lifetime moments where that, that we'll never forget where we'd meet individuals or groups of people that had done extraordinary things for us. Mm. Um, what, and, sort of, what are you
0: thinking of then?
1: Oh, I've got a lot of them. Um, you know, I've probably got... Uh, yeah, a couple of hundred. So to choose one seems wrong, but um, oh, it's
0: not about choosing your favourite. It was just the oh, you know, the, just
1: the hugs on the side of the road, and and then coming into town, like, and um, you know the, the the lengths that towns would go to to support us. Um, you know, just the way the kids acted at the at the community fundraisers. Um, and then, of course, the gratification of re- receiving those letters saying, "Hey, I checked my boobs. Thanks for the reminder. I'm onto it early. I'll be fine."
2: Mm. Yeah, not,
1: the th- yeah. There's so many thrills. It was beautiful. Mm. It was beautiful. I think L- the- life will never be that no amazing again. You know, I mean, it was so heightened, and we were in a bubble, man. Like, it, even though bad things happened within it, like not, ultimately, nothing could touch us, and nothing really did. Um, we're in this bubble of goodwill, just being pushed along by everybody that we met along the way. It was fucking amazing. I will never be a recipient of such goodwill again. You know, I mean, nothing that we ever do will warrant the kind of, um, treatment that we received for that. VIP ain't a fucking limo and a fucking red carpet, you know, but when you rock into town, you know, doing your best to try and find a cure for you know for the mums out there with breast breast cancer then you know what it's like to be a vip because at one o'clock in the morning you're rolling into town and you've got to stop at the apex park at one in the morning and there's there's a woman there with a bootload of food for you that she spent the last three days cooking um and Jeez, she knows know you just she knows you're just passing through so she'll she'll come and meet you when you come through so at one in the morning with her five kids at home tucked safely away in bed and a kitchen full of dishes that still need to be washed she she kind of goes and hands us a week's worth of food you no know, it's a simple act, but I don't know when I'm gonna enjoy stuff more than nights like that mm.
0: I think some of the yeah uh, the things that I remember the most is, yeah, the rolling into town, the liaising with the new communities each time, um, feeling like that VIP thing where Mm. it felt like we were rock stars almost, but without the sort of negative connotation that we were rock stars who were doing this amazingly charitable thing. Yeah.
1: Um, We we weren't famous for being on telly. Yeah. We were famous for the thing we were doing, which was... You know, quite a noble thing, a noble thing. So, we got treated better than rock stars do. Mm. You know, like absolutely better. Like we were, f- we were fated as community leaders. You know, as road warriors. You know, yeah. as um, as 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 champions for sick mums out there, and 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 for saviours of children's families. Yeah, yeah, like it, whether we thought we were that or not. No, that's how we that, that's how we were treated. And um you know, I would come off being treated as a celebrity or a de-lebrity, as you boys like to say. <laughs> um being treated as a de-lebrity all my life. And and it's different, man. It's, it's and ever since I've done that right, it's been different. I no longer really feel like I get treated like I'm a guy off the
0: telly. Mm. For the record, the deliberately thing was a double meaning.
1: Oh, well, it took me six and a half years to half understand your sense of humor. <laughs> so I'm probably 12 years away from understanding your double meanings. It's a double I'll meaning. Work, I'll work it out tomorrow. What's yeah. the double meaning?
0: Well, it's a deliberately because it's What's one it? less than a C. But That's it's a, right. it's a deliberately because it's like demystifying a celebrity.
1: Oh, fuck. I didn't
0: get... Oh, I didn't realise you like had that unsubrily. angle. That's right. I only, only actually made that connection right now then, didn't well, I? Well, that
1: means it could be a triple
0: <laughs> meaning by next week. Yeah. <laughs> um, That was one of the characters that we, one of the many characters that we didn't Oh vote. man,
1: so many voices, so many accents.
0: Yeah. You get sick of your own voice after about a week. I we get sick of <laughs> voice as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that one of the things that I loved so much doing was the school visits and when we would at the end of that get the whole school, get all the kids <laughs> in their in the assembly room, what it was probably ranging from one hundred to what, five hundred a thousand kids yeah. to all scream, Love your sister in unison and then go Ape shit. Yeah. And then we'd just fuck off. Yeah. And the teachers would have to deal with <laughs> and- the we, we
1: would psych the, and hype the kids up like as if they, as if we'd handed around like double bowls of red jelly and said right, eat it in ten seconds. We're about to go ape shit. Yeah, um, and we'd hype them up to a collective kind of you know mess. And, um, and they'd have to go back to school when we left and the teachers would have to calm them down. The amount of teachers that looked at us after that with an eye roll and come and pat <laughs> us on the back and go, thanks for doing that. I've got to take them to class now. And it would be like, our pleasure.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um, we did have a lot of fun with them. And, I, you know, I mean, that Massive. was one of my favourite roles on that was, you know, becoming as close to the Pied Piper as I could.
2: Mm.
0: Yes, that's an interesting way to look at it, roll into town with you with with the van full of little trick bikes and yep.
1: well that was the strategy you know absolutely was to win the kids mm-hmm. um especially at our family fundraisers uh, win the kids give the mums a break I think most other people would go all right we our demographic is young mums with cancer we're going to we're going to go into the car park we're going to set up shop and we're going we're going to get leaflets out and we're going to give balloons out for the kids and we're going to go and find those mums and remind them to check their boobs whereas we went okay all right let's go in with trick bikes let's go in with fun stuff to do let's get the families there let's play with the kids let's get do treasure hunts let's let's play massive games of hide and seek um, you know, let's just have a ball with the kids so often. And of course, I was charged with doing that because, um, because I was the best person to do that, I believe. And, um, and so sometimes I'd take off with the kids for a couple of hours. Maybe one or two of the parents would come, and a photographer from the paper or whatever. There was always adult present there to help me out if, um, if anyth- if one of the kids got hurt or if anything went wrong. But essentially, those mums were able to catch up with their other mum friends in the park, and um, and not worry about being interrupted by the kids. Mm. And sure enough, two hours later, they've they've had half an afternoon off, um, and they're really grateful for me um, keeping their kids busy. So that when we get to the, oh, by the way, can you check check your boobs tonight? Um, it might mean more. Mm. And also I've planted it with the kids so that when they get home that night and they're around the dinner table, they say, so mum, have you checked your boobs? Because ultimately it's going to be mean more coming from the kids than it is coming from me. Mm. And a lot of the letters we got were stories about how their kid reminded them to check their boobs. Now, if you're a new mum and you've got a five-year-old, you know, your five-year-old looking up at you and saying, have you checked your boobs yet, Mum? You know, how much more likely are you to check your boobs than if some lebrity rolls through on a unicycle and says, hey, do you mind checking your tits? So for me, it worked. I, get, I, I got to claim that, I think rightfully, that we did true community liaison and that our community engagement plan was second to none. I got to spend all this great time with the kids and the message still got through. It meant we weren't too prescriptive to, the, um, to our demographic as well. Mm. We kind of, we got our message via, you know, kind of fairly stealthily through the media and, and directly, but also through their kids.
0: I think the media gave it the credibility so that when we did roll into town, the parents knew that it was a credible charity to allow the access to the kids to be able to give the message to the kids to then pass back upwards.
1: Yeah, well, we live in a cynical world, so you know, and we're a lot, an all male um, troupe, mm. um, um, and that cynicism drops away really quickly once you get out of the metropolitan areas. And uh, sure, everyone's careful and all that kind of stuff, but I, I, I don't think we were ever questioned in in, in that sense um, um, at all. I mean, what we were doing was really really pure and um and we could we could do stuff with the kids that might be considered i don't know borderline in kind of some areas in the country just because um i mean we to, we i don't know i, I don't know why but I, we got more license with the kids in the bush i was more able to kind of feel like i could grab a bunch of kids and go off to that tree that was 100 meters away without having to ask every parent mm. Whereas if we were doing a metropolitan or a, or a kind of fundraiser, then I don't feel like I could run off with the kids, mm. you know.
0: Mm. Yeah, you were definitely able to get your kid on as well.
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing. I am a kid. So as soon as people see that, they relax because they realise I'm just tapping into my inner child, and which I love to do, and I've never lost him. He's great.
0: Does he have a name?
1: Yeah, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was a weird question.
0: <laughs> With a little less. With a little Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how important was it for you to be doing this for kids so that they wouldn't have to grow up without mums because that was something that you had to do?
1: Um yeah, that was part of it. I mean, it's, you know, at the end of at the end of the day it was all Connie's messaging. So it was it was our imperative, you know, I just I was just kind of spouting Connie's imperative. Um, my message would be different if I was unicycling you know, around for my own cause. Um, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't a deliberate strategy to go go for the kids, you know. Like, um, it was a deliberate strategy to have family-friendly events and to visit schools. Hmm. Um, and then as we went along, we realised how effective it was. Um, kind of working the messaging through the kids. Um, you have to be very careful with it because you don't want to promote fear. You don't want all these kids going, oh, my God, my mum is going to die if she doesn't check her boobs tonight. So we were very careful w- with the way we dealt um, with children and we weren't very we were specific. Mm. It was all very, very vague and we kept it positive. So it was all just about, um, you know, making sure that mummy doesn't get, sti- get, get sick and certainly no mention of death.
0: Mm. And on the note of Connie, I guess... Um and also this kind of ties in with what we were speaking about before now that I think about it. When Connie was first diagnosed, she was given six months to live. Six to 12, they said, yeah. And that was now Three and a half, four years, years ago. ago. It was three and a half, four Actually, years
1: ago. Actually, no, it's 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 after more than four now. Yeah. More than four years ago.
0: How much of an impact do you think this whole thing, I guess, one of the things that's happened in this podcast is that each guest has brought a different lesson, if you like, And today's lesson seems to be about the importance of having a mission or focus in your life. How much do you think that her having this thing to wake up for every day, to work on every day, this mission of reminding every mum in the land has contributed to her sustained health?
1: Um, It's certainly helped. We keep her really busy deliberately and she says that it's had an effect. Um, But it's not something that you can measure. Mm. Um, It's an intangible. Um, it's It's like saying... Uh, it's like wondering how much po- the, how how much effect positive thinking might have on uh on 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 a cancer um, you can have two people with exactly the same disease in that is progressed in the same way that is been uh, that has been diagnosed at the same time and being treated in the same way you can have one person that's Uh, that's really gloomy and another person that's really positive that starts Love Your Sister raises $2 million for the Garvin Institute of Medical Research and is now still more determined than ever to make a difference. Um, Connie could die a lot sooner than the gloomy one. Mm. So it's helpful for us to kind of think that it's had a positive effect and that it's extended her life. Um, But we're talking about about science and about physiology and about cancer um and i don't know if you talk to those cancer cells i'm not sure they'd be able to define what philanthropy or love your sister or charity or anything really is Mm. um i like to think that it's helped um i accept the fact that it's immeasurable um but I certainly believe that it works to the point where I keep finding shit for her to do with this because I believe that it's helpful. Um, As she says and as any cancer patient would say, and don't take this the wrong way, but when you've got a terminal diagnosis, sometimes your kids aren't enough. And I see it as my role to provide her with something deep and meaningful and to be cherished separate to the kids on the rare occasion that her kids aren't enough.
2: Mm.
0: Do you feel like there's something in that that's been a through line in your life um, in terms of providing for Connie or for your dad when other things haven't been enough? Um Via, probably more so via the via acting or your performing and sharing that and then now this is now into the philanthropic portion of your life
1: i think i've always wanted to try to do the right thing uh and i'm not religious or you know but everyone has a value system and um right and wrong i'd say would be the the theme that's kind of occupied my brain the most since I can remember as a kid. So I've always been very aware of my, uh, my wrongdoings, hyper-aware of them. And I don't like how I feel when I do something wrong, whether it's wrong by myself or wrong by someone else. Yet I, my life is an unending series of fuck-ups. So I do wrong so well. And I'm so sick of apologising. And I'm so sick of doing the wrong thing, even if I don't think it's the wrong thing, but it's wrong according to my friend's measure or societal's measure or society's measure. Um, So for me, I'm always striving to do the right thing, whether it's the right thing by another person or the right thing by myself. Um, And that's not to say that I'm any more righteous or do anything more rightfully than anybody else, but that's been my focus and my aim. And I think it's got to do with my propensity for wrongness my predisposition for wrongness and my natural ability at being and doing wrong things um so um so i'd say that's my theme Mm. ultimately is that look is this the right is is this the right thing for me to do is is this the right thing for me maybe not but if i do it it's the right thing for that person that person that person and that person so even though i don't want to do it i'm going to do it because overall it's the right thing to do this is how most of us lead our lives and um, and it's how I laid
2: mine.
1: Mm. I mean, I'm I'm no more subservient to my moral compass than anybody else is. I just have to be more attentive than most people because of my um, because of my dark side and 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 the ease at which I can do and the ease with which I can make wrong decisions or perform the wrong action. So mm. it's only th- that's only why I might consider myself to be slightly more concentrated on right or wrong because I slip into the wrong a little more easily than most people, perhaps. Arguably, we'll see.
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess right and wrong are just the subjective terms. It's as all we've good got, though. Yeah, it's all we've got. Of course.
1: Yeah. When you die, you know, did I fucking treat my family right? You know.
0: Probably about it. Is family the most important thing for you?
1: Uh, I try to pretend it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much is. Well, I mean, parents are dead and I'm the oldest man in the family. So I, I, as I get older, I feel more and more responsible for my family and they become more and more important to me.
0: you believe in a patriarchal kind of model of family?
1: Uh, no, not at all. No, no, no. I think the whole world... Every business and every family should be run by women. I'm openly sexist against men. They've had their turn. They've fucked it up, handed over.
0: <laughs> I think that's a very valid point. Mate,
1: we, we let women run our relationships. Well, it's all why, why don't we let them run our governments? Mm. <laughs> they have, they run us better than we run ourselves. They run everything better than we run things. Mm. Yeah, no, no, down with the patriarch, mate. Well, wait, patriarchal we- system, mate.
0: We've still got lizard brains while they're highly advanced.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, they dumb things down for us, mate. So that we understand.
2: Mm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. So let's swing back over to... Um, back into your acting. Yes. Um, if we may. What time do you have to go, by the way?
1: Um, a hair past a freckle, freckle. Cool. Yeah.
0: Nick, what time is that?
1: <laughs> Can you face the check, other way, check mate? Your Can you just—he's got a swivel chair, and all and he just chooses to give me that angle.
0: Ah, uh, he's just giving us the pasty moon. <laughs> Could you at least shave it next time?
1: <laughs> um, cheesy moon. Full wheel. Your ass looks like the back of SpongeBob SquarePants' head.
0: <laughs> it even has the same kind of holes you want to squeeze it. <sighs> Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? For those of us listening, I'm
1: wincing about as much as you can wince at this point.
0: Your face does look like a cat's anus. Yeah, alright. <laughs> I knew we'd plumb the depths here. Um something that I, that we've we've talked about before a while ago was the 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 headiness and this is something that's always interested me is the headiness of being a famous person first of all i guess what was it like when you did after i guess what would have been five or six years of kind of just doing guesties and then you land the role of evan on secret life of us what did that feel like because you were what 21
1: 21 yeah yeah what did it feel like fuck um
0: Yeah, I don't know, it
1: just changed everything, it altered everything, it felt really weird, I lost my sense of self, my sense of space, my sense of purpose, the whole process was really discombobulating, Um, and because I was confused by it, I got defensive, and because I was defensive, I harboured cynicism, and I became very negative, and very distrustful, um, and very suspicious, so... I mean, it's, it kind of, I happened on a small scale when I was 14 or 15, I got a job on Home and Away and I was always, um, you know, struggling for friends at school because my personality was so overbearing and um, the pretty girls kind of, you know, never really had the time for me, but the day after I was first on Home and Away at 15, I rocked back, I rocked up to school, walked into class and all the pretty girls were like, Sam, 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 come and sit next to me sit next to me sam and i was just like what you know it was the one sentence i'd never expect to hear from from that group of people at school so i um i said no and sat in my normal seat on my own up the front um because i didn't trust it so yeah it, it, when secret life of us hit um it was it was a really big show at the time and i became a little bit famous and uh and it changed the type of people that I was used to dealing with because it meant that I ended up with the proactive TV watchers that wanted to come and discuss my profession. So I ended up dealing almost entirely with a certain type of person. Um, and before Secret Life of Us, I dealt mostly with the kind of people that don't spend their um lives watching television so um the whole process was really confusing and i became quite negative and um and it took years and years and years for that distrust to fall away Mm. and it still hasn't completely
0: you had your first uh on-screen kiss was your first kiss
1: yeah i'd never kissed a girl had to do it on camera kate Ritchie um from home and away she played a character called sally sally fletcher um, she's on radio now done a, done a bit of other stuff too since she left but yeah I'd never kissed a girl uh,
0: did you did you that's uh, horrifying
1: yeah you know kissing and kissing having your first kiss like in front of all these people and all these cameras. I was pretty sure I'd get it wrong and that and that Kate would laugh at me <laughs> did she She was very supportive and she and she was fine and I still remember her taste mm. yeah can remember it just like yesterday.
0: Did you bar up?
1: No, no, I didn't, no, it's not, as most actors probably attest to, Um, it's not a very sexy thing. You're usually surrounded by sweaty crew members and hot lights and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes you do. (laughs) It's a bit of a sorry if I do, sorry if I don't. If you do, it's awkward. If you don't, well, it's not very flattering either, is it? (laughs) (laughs) I think it was Clark Gable or... One of those old school kind of black and white movie stars that said, "Darling, sorry if I do, sorry if I don't."
0: Sounds right. I always attributed that to you, actually. <laughs>
1: don't ever attribute anything to me. I'm a walking fucking secondhand something.
0: Walking, walking quote book. Yeah. So you, so you land the role of Evan, and I mean, obviously, Secret Life of Us was a new show when you got the part. What did it feel like? I guess before all of the headiness and cynicism started to kick in to actually be the lead in a show?
1: Uh, Yeah, it was pretty weird. I was the youngest in the cast and I was narrating the show and I was in with a bunch of amazing actors, including Deb Mailman and Claudia Carvin. And um, it was just fun, to be honest. We gelled in that rare way that some casts do. Every now and then you get a group of actors together and it just happens um it's i've only seen it happen twice in my whole career it happened on that and it just happened to me recently on this molly job
0: damo said it happened on um, underbelly yeah right
1: there you go um so that's what you chase and you and you know that everyone's getting along but you don't know that that's going to translate into good product um none of none of us i don't think we were hopeful for the show but i don't think any of us thought it would do what it did um so, of course, shooting season one and shooting season two were very different experiences because season one, we were all just um, a bunch of actors who just had each other. And season two, we rocked back and everyone was really famous.
0: And the next thing I was going to ask was how that fame or cynicism may affect your love and passion for what you do. But I guess it hasn't really impacted you that, that greatly.
1: Oh, man, it enables me to do what I want to do. It completely facilitates everything. So I'm all about keeping my profile up. I absolutely will take a job just for that reason. Mm. I'll take a job with no artistic merit at all that I know is going to be a steaming pile of turd. A bit, a bit like Nick's bum at the moment. Um, and um, and I'll, I'll do it just to keep the profile up because it leverages everything else. Mm. um i'm not going to throw away my profile lightly i've spent 20 years building it and i build it so that i it can fund my more creative and philanthropic and familial pursuits i want to be able to help my family if they need help um you know i I, want to be able to make I want to be able to be able to tour theatre shows around the place if I want, and I want to be able to raise money for breast cancer if I want. All of that is made easier to do if I maintain a profile, even if it is just a middling one.
0: Mm. I think you're um, very humble with your views on yourself.
1: Oh, mate, I get around on the tram and the train and go to the shops like everyone else, and mm. you know, at, you know, at most someone might say, "G'day," or.
0: You're like the Keanu Reeves of Australia. All
1: right. (laughs) (laughs) By all accounts, he's very
0: quite humble in that way. Yeah,
1: he's pretty, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He he gets around like normal people do. Mm. Yeah.
0: Who was it? There was some, uh, I'm going to end up cutting this out because I can't remember who the actor was, but I remember hearing about an actor who's quite well known, would have been in the 60s or 70s, who refused to subscribe to celebrity culture, and would just um, just said, "I'm not famous," and would just go and go to the milk bar like a regular person, mm, and mm. do uh, use regular person in inverted commas because it would be
1: really hard for those people that are massively famous to live that way though, and you can see why they end up leading cloistered lives. It's mm. um, you know after after fifteen people have just walked through your front gate or jumped your very low fence and actually fucking looked in on you while you're trying to fucking make love to your wife. Um, you know, it, it, I can see why they end up living the way they do, but what kind of life would it be? Mm, not much. But I mean, personally, I don't want to live in any gated community. No. Isn't that an oxymoron, gated community? Mm-hmm gated community don't call it a community if it's gated no. call, call it like a rich person's jail or <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, yeah. Or, or like f- i don't know a homestay for the rich
0: yeah have you seen the trailer for that um amy winehouse doco no it looks harrowing like the way that she talks about uh, never wanting to be famous and i don't think i could yeah handle it mental, yeah. from a mental point of I view spoke, i
1: spoke to an actor that died young um, a very famous actor that died young uh, in that kind of vein um and um i asked um i asked him um one day i said how do you how do you cope with this and he looked at me and said, I don't mm. you know it's a scary world that world mm. i I wouldn't swap with any of them for quids no I mean, is it really worth having a few million bucks in a fucking house with a pool if you can't roam the earth as a human?
0: You can probably get that without the celebrity attachment as well if you work a bit harder.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know whether they're chasing the money or the fame or both or whether they're just chasing their art because a lot Mm -hmm. of these people are just chasing their art. A lot of the people I know that succeeded on an international level, they they just wanted to be good at what they were at. They didn't want to be famous. They didn't want to have a star on a fucking footpath somewhere. Mm. It's just part of of the job if you're really good at it.
0: It all seems like it would be like once you break through a certain level, it feels like it would all be so absurd and it would just be like a nightmare that you can't wake up from.
1: Oh, man, yeah, but they can all get out. They can go and do their art house movies and their fucking theatre shows for the rest of their life if they want to. True. I mean, if I if if I ever got a fucking toe in that world, and I won't, and I don't, I'm not foolish enough to think that I will. But if I ever did, I'd I'd go and do a two hundred million dollar film, try and get a try and get my million bucks or whatever, and and then run. <laughs> go and live in a cave. And then I'd just run. I, I yeah, I, it wouldn't be about building a fucking career there. Like, mm. I'd go, give me one big paycheck, and then fuck off out of there. Mm. And so, go by a little fucking place about an hour out of Melbourne and, you know, with a, a little log cabin and just fucking write poetry and masturbate.
0: Place to hang your unicycle at night. Exactly. <laughs> so, Jerry Bruckheimer, if you're listening, and you need yeah, someone for your new yeah, parts of the Caribbean yeah. film. <laughs> uh, I, reckon,
1: I reckon, actually, I've got a long head. I reckon I should take over in um, Jeffrey Rush's role in 2041. Yeah. When Geoffrey Rush has finished doing Pirates of the Caribbean, I yeah. reckon I'll, I because I've got a naturally long head, I reckon I'll be as saggy as he is now by then. What's that? It's about It'll be Pirates away. of the Caribbean fifty four, mm. uh, rescue <laughs> of the dead man's whatever. Um, but and yeah, you could I, be the I reckon dead man's I should. Whatever. Yeah, I'll be the dead man's whatever. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and because you're in the title, you have to get paid. Yeah,
1: yeah, bucks. yeah. And, and I only do one of them because that's all I need, isn't it, Geoffrey?
0: <laughs> so Jeffrey Rush, if you're listening to this 2041 is the year that you will retire
1: But I suppose, I don't know, you get used to those big paychecks You would do eight of them, wouldn't you?
0: Well, I was listening to a podcast um, with Dana Carvey you Yeah know, Who was Garth in Wayne's World Yeah, right I don't really know what he's done beyond that, which was 1993 He would have been, yeah, but he wouldn't have been paid that much, would he? Well, he was saying that his like monthly expenditure is a hundred grand or something. So he needs to, you know, he needs now, to be able to sustain that. Yeah. Now? Yeah. Far out. I'm like, and, and, but he seems to be comfortable in doing, he must do a lot of writing or producing or something. He's got to be doing stuff. Like, or, I mean, that's, or can you that's make a hundred, can you make a
1: hundred K a month in America, not doing anything? That, well, probably. I wouldn't know. They've mastered. I them. don't understand how they work.
0: It's a litigious community.
1: I come from Australia where you work for your money. <laughs>
0: We've just got to sue someone. That's right. Who should I sue?
1: Yeah. Should I sue you for putting up with me over the years? Or... <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Al. Yeah. <laughs> You've been way too patient. That's right. We're going to court. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll sue you for suing me. Yeah.
1: Can you sue someone just for suing him? Yeah, you can. That's well, called what counter-suing.
0: I, what if you sue me yeah. and then I'll sue Leighton? Or even better, if Even you. better.
1: let's team up and work out fucking who to sue properly. I will, but it should be for something really ridiculous, like let's like let's sue someone for not for, for parting their hair the wrong way or something. You know?
2: Yeah. Or well, you probably something have-
1: something outrageous that should be illegal. You know, like I don't know, wearing two earrings in one ear. You know, <laughs> wearing or, odd shoes. Or yeah, let's just sue everyone. Let's do one of those um, group actions. What do you call them? Class action. Let's do a class action against every Australian with a Southern Cross tattoo. <laughs>
0: I'm on board for that. Yeah, that should be illegal. A
1: real, a real Australian um, welcome refugees kind of class action. Mm. Yeah. All right, cool.
0: <laughs> Reclaim Australia from the boat. And what could we the...
1: do with all their tats once we fucking peel them off with knives? Um, we could. What could that build? Well, that could we, build we could build something. I don't know. Maybe a home. I was thinking we could arrival. do like
0: a crowdfunding campaign for like a horror film and give those away.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, either way, either way, you could throw them in the bin and they'd still be more useful.
0: <laughs> Imagine if you were a lawyer and your name was Sue. <laughs> That's
1: good. I like it.
0: It sounds like a Johnny Cash song. Yeah. What if you? What if you're a lawyer called
1: Sue and you married an Asian called called Lang Me?
0: Sue Lang Sue Me Ah. Gotcha. I can
1: ruin any of your good jokes, Al. It's my pleasure.
0: I, I, I like to think that you enhanced it. Oh, no, I, it should I be, it should be
1: Lang first. me now. So so you marry so Sue marries Miss Miss Lang. me now. Miss me now. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got the Miss me now and the Sue me now.
0: Miss Sue me now. No,
1: no, Miss me now is her miss name. All oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And he cha- and, and he changes his name to Sue me now when he marries <laughs> yeah. her. Wait, he. Changes and after his, that point, he he'll never miss her again. Sue. What's that?
0: He changes his name to Sue.
1: Either way, we're not going to do Sue as well as fucking Johnny Cash does Sue.
0: No, no. That's a boy named Sue. Yeah,
1: but I. But I reckon he controls the whole time Anything to do with Sue, mm. suing or anything, he owns that.
0: Johnny Cash. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Great song. <laughs> We listen to a lot of Johnny Cash on the road. You have to. A lot of you singing uh, Ring of Fire. and
1: Yeah, well, only when my ring was fiery. Like, it was topical. Yeah. I just bring it up for no reason.
0: <laughs> well, your ring was fiery a lot because you were sitting on a saddle for 15 hours a day. Yeah. Remember doing the fucking 90 miles straight? That was a crazy night. I remember Leighton and I just hallucinating the road moving. In all sorts of weird ways, I could only imagine what it would have been like for you.
1: That was one of the epic nights. Like, I think I covered thirty k's before we even hit the ninety mile straight. It
0: was something like one hundred and seventy or one hundred and eighty k's yeah, in a yeah. sixteen-hour period. Yeah, and mostly just straight.
1: Yeah, and we and we sat on that log at the end of it, and I had one of the best gym beams I've ever had.
0: Yeah, Yep. Yeah, I remember that vividly.
1: <sighs> it was good. You whinging about the desert. <laughs> <laughs> me going fucking this is beautiful mate can't you see it i think we're both tripping yep
0: (laughs) (laughs) just a bit of shrub um so you come out of secret life of us um and you kind of went off the radar a little bit until rush came around Mm. um that was when laney passed away yeah um What was it like to get back into the swing of things after going through something so devastating?
1: Well, the secret life of us stuff happened, and like I bought a little shack in my home near my hometown to try and get away from all the bullshit. Um, And I assumed that people from my hometown wouldn't fucking put me through it. Um, So, kind of just I bit a retreat because I felt like I wasn't going very well. Um, then I shacked up with, um, a beautiful creature by the name of Laney. And, um, we had a great time together up there in Dalesford. I didn't fully focus on the acting. I might've done a bit of radio in it over 100. And, uh, uh and then Laney, uh, killed herself, um, which was very upsetting, of course. Um, not least for her family. Um, and... So then, the kind of that I, that kind of derailed me a bit, um, and then I kind of edged my way back into Melbourne, and um, shacked up fairly quickly with an old mate um, um, who had also lost her best friend to suicide at the same time, and so then we kind of picked the pieces up together then, and um, it took quite a while for me to recover from that. And then kind of once I'd recovered kind of somewhat, yeah, to, I got offered a role to play the tech geek on a cop show called Rush. Um, so that was very much about getting back to work, um, getting back to normal and um, and and trying to recover some of the debts that I'd accrued in the haze of my grief. Um, so, Yeah. So it was one of those points in life where you kind of lose everything and have to start again. So I spent the house on kind of not working and on legal fees and stuff. It's a complicated story that whole period. But uh, um, so Rush was kind of definitely uh, my first time back on regular tally in a few years. Um, I'd kind of had a few years out trying to work out what I wanted to do you know working at Spud Farms and working at pubs and taking on labouring work And Did you enjoy do, doing that? Yeah I did absolutely but um, absolutely um, and I imagine there's still plenty more of that work to come for me um, the acting work's getting thinner and thinner as I get older I'm lucky to get 50 days a year now so that's another lot of days that I've got to fill doing other stuff so Um, so yeah, Rush was kind of, yeah, definitely kind of, I suppose, my, my, my foot back in.
0: Mm. Did it feel good to get back in the acting? No, I
1: hated it. It gave me the shits. Um, it was the worst side of commercial TV for me. I mean, I I was basically a vehicle for exposition. So I didn't have to say anything. I just had to literally tell the audience what was happening. Mm. Suspect has crossed Flinders Street in a yellow car. I found him. He's on the corner of fucking whatever and fucking whatever. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. Copy that. I'm on it.
0: So you did hours and every hours episode. Of I'm on it.
1: All right, I'm on it. I'm onto it. Sometimes I say I'm onto it instead of I'm on it. It's
0: gonna say because I saw that episode.
1: Yeah, yeah. Leave it with me. Okay. All right. Roger that. Fuck, man. It was boring. Mm. But it was one day a week. Uh, which is about all I could have handled at that point in my life. And uh, they paid me well, and it gave me a chance to get back on my feet. Mm. Creatively, it was boring, but in in a way, it was the cushiest job ever.
0: Mm. If memory serves correctly, it was around about that time that you actually got funding for some writing that you'd done. Mm. Um, you were writing a screenplay um and you got some funding from the government yeah i got it.
1: new new writer's scheme screen australia uh it was a bit earlier actually it was kind of probably just after secret life that would have been but in between secret life and rush the yeah the new writer scheme they mm. gave me they gave me i said i probably shouldn't mention the name because i'll i'll be defamatory so they gave me a, a a hollywood script editor and um he tried to turn my moral fable into a heist film and the whole process was disenchanting and i didn't write for 10 years after that
0: Mm. writing is obviously something you're very passionate about and saying before about you know in an ideal world you'd have a fucking cabin where you could just write poetry and masturbate yeah um so they're obviously your two sort of (laughs) biggest hobbies in life um but writing is something that you got from your dad.
1: I was groomed to be a writer. Um, my mum was a poet. My dad was a writer. He published 17 books. Um, I was raised in a house that always had a minimum of 100,000 books in it and no television. Um, so I was raised to so be a you say 100,000 books? At least, a minimum, yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was the only thing dad owned. Yeah. So we spent half our childhood um, just going around to bookshops. 'Cause dad was obsessed with um accruing every um Australian novel ever written in its first edition. Mm. Yeah. So that's what he did.
0: And you actually My dad wasn't
1: just a bookworm, he was like a book freak.
0: Mm. Mm. Um book a bookophile.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that better word for it.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Can't make one up. Yeah. Um and you actually uh, helped him. In opening your, your line of family bookstores
1: yeah 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 so when i was 15 he was sick of doing commissioned histories to support the kids and he had a he had most every first edition of, of every australian novel so he decided to sell sell them all and start a secondhand book business um so yeah i remember i remember loaning him six thousand dollars for that um in about 96 Hmm um, and that was great. It started off a, a, a little mini family empire. We ended up at our peak with seven book, seven secondhand bookstores. Wow. And, um, my dad and my sisters ran them. I never, I never really had much to do with them, but, uh, but yeah so I come from a book family you know my dad wrote books for 20 years and then sold secondhand books for 20 years so and that was his life mm. if you wanted to see dad you'd, you'd you know you'd go to the back room at the bookstore and see him with his can of VB his lead pencil and his pile of books he'd he he'd price two three hundred thousand books a year by hand with a gray lead pen pencil
0: so do you feel like um artistically that the writing and the story like that's probably the fundamental and the most important part of the creative process Uh, acting
1: certainly secondary to writing Um, writing's more purely creative and it's not that acting isn't artistic it's just that it's interpretive Mm -hmm. whereas the writing's more purely creative um so yeah look i mean i I can't treat acting seriously at all because it's just it's just not up there with music and writing so um generally speaking i mean acting's what i do to get to those more purely creative pursuits (laughs) um and yeah i'm trying to transition into being a writer and um i'll always act for money um sometimes i'll act for creative reasons but usually i'm doing it for profile or for money
0: like when you take on the role of a transvestite prostitute
1: yeah, well, obviously that was just for the opportunity to cross dress again. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, like doing that's for fun. You don't get paid. You do it. You know, you do it for fun. I'm quite happy to act for free. Mm. Um, you know, if 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 the project titillates me creatively. But yeah, I'd like. I'm starting to make a little bit of money out of writing now, and I'm. Our st- book just got nominated for ABA um, Australian Book Industry Awards oh, for for. For biography of the year, alongside Julia Gillard, Bob Brown, and Molly Meldrum. Wow! Congratulations. So, um, you know, I'm at the point now where my writing is kind of starting to come up. So, how did um, it
0: feel for like to have a book published?
1: Um, well, my sister kind of co-wrote it with me, so I still don't have that feeling. Right. Yeah, I've got I've got the feeling of what it feels like to co-author something. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've authored a couple of pieces that have been in. Um, kind of publications that I really respect and it feels good feels great mm. and I'm certainly going to be doing more writing um, as I get older mm. do a bit of a William McGuinness you know
0: so done Rush done Love Your Sister you come back from Love Your Sister I mean first of all I mean I don't think we ever actually had any sort of debrief or anything on you know what was, what was the feeling like for you coming back into Fed Square? Because, I mean, I remember when I was running after you and ran up onto, onto the stage at Fed Square there, filming you and filming Connie, and it wasn't until a couple of minutes after I'd been there that I turned around and actually saw how many people were there and, and was kind of hit with that whole experience. I mean what was it what was the experience like for you?
1: No, yeah, the fairy tale finished never it was the opposite for me. I was grieving. I didn't want the thing to be over. Um, it was ultimately a set piece, um, for mm. news cameras. Um, I was very cynical and, um, I felt like I just had to behave in a certain way so that I could finish the fairy tale according to the way we'd pre-planned it. Mm. You know, I wanted to cry and be sad. I didn't want it to be an uplifting, I made it moment. But, but when you've got fucking 15 news cameras in your face and, you know, like I was required to be joyful at that moment. So it ended up feeling fraudulent. Mm um to be honest it felt like a fraudulent set piece um and I I think the true the true feeling of having finished was when I went through my hometown in Dalesford Mm. um so yeah I don't know I was I kind of I I, I had an episode that day too I I went you know I was having major major anxiety going from having a road that was mostly mine to kind of the hecticness of kind of Melbourne and yeah Mm. so I didn't cope didn't cope at all um, and I didn't get my dream finished that I'd fantasised so heavily about throughout the trip. Um, the problem with dreams and fantasies is that when that when you actualize them, they become real and they no longer have that special dream or fantasy-like quality. So, there's a great, um, um, so yeah, it was a letdown.
0: There's a great Jim Carrey <coughs> quote, I think, mm. that is something like, I wish every person uh, in the world could have their dreams come true so they realize that they're not the key to happiness.
1: Yeah, exactly yeah yeah they're not it's about the doing of them that um, um that matters certainly the achieving of them
0: what was I, your dream finish
1: uh, uh my dream. i got my dream finish it was to hug my sister who would be alive at the finish line mm. and for her to and for her to look at me and crying with pride in her eyes and knowing that she'd be more proud of me than she's ever been of anybody mm. um and i got that i got all that but um yeah i don't know it's like you know you imagine that premiership player always wanting that that premiership medal and they play their whole career to play in a grand final and then they look at the medal and realize it's just
0: a medal Mm, it was just that it's about the journey to get there yeah totally Oh, yeah.
1: So I got to hold the trophy aloft and be the premiership player, but it meant nothing. The trophy mm. the trophy or the medal or that moment at the end, it's all just symbolic. Mm. I'd like to speak to AFL football players about how they felt when they realised their medal didn't mean anything. Mm. Or whether they or whether they've refu- or whether they continue to insist that it means everything.
0: It's like you have won what two AFI awards?
1: One AFI. One. Yeah.
0: And where's that?
1: Yeah, well, it certainly means nothing to me now. At The time I thought it might have.
0: But I think it's the same sort of mentality. It's the process of getting to that point. Yeah, totally. um, As opposed to the actual tangible We're very
1: destination focused as humans and you have to be to complete your goals and to be able to kind of see things through. Um, But some of the best stuff in my life remains unfinished. Mm. And anything that... I've been a part of that's been amazing, that's been completed. The joy has not been in
0: the completion of it. No. I mean, there was this... Maybe a
1: couple of weeks later, when you have time to reflect, you can enjoy the completion of it.
0: Yeah. But as I was saying, I think some of the best memories I had of being on the road were those nights where it was you and me or you, Leighton, and I just talking shit and dreaming big and, and the bits we remember aren't
1: the fucking tv interviews or the fucking parades no. or the or the you know or the massive kind of you know we remember the human things yeah. in terms of the other people we remember the small things that were done for us and in terms of us as a team we remember fucking throwing cans of baked beans in the fire and watching them <laughs> explode and running away like kids and and, and, yeah. and, and we remember sitting down after doing the 90 miles Straight, watching the sunrise in the desert and sharing a drink. We don't remember the epic bits.
0: No. Well, those were the epic
1: bits. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, we, but don't forget that we human. fucking bungee jumped and we jumped out of planes and, you know, we swam with Crocs and we fucking, we did all this crazy shit, but none of it rates right a mention now. Mm. It's all about the bits where we just sat and went, wow, how pretty is that?
0: Mm. Oh, the fucking... Mm. Uh, great australian bite oh man you know fuck Mm, like Ginderbine. yeah totally um so you 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 come back and actually get into you did in the last 12 months you've done secret river hipsters and molly Mm. um did i miss anything in there
1: Oh, little stuff, but little yeah, that's pieces. basically the just... The and a lot of voiceover of work and yeah. stuff.
0: How are you aligned to, you know, this... Um, while we're on the road, you know, we talked a lot about Straightjacket Productions and what, your, what you wanted to do in terms of creating this broad spectrum of um, creativity and creative output for people. Um, and you've got, a you know, your own theatre wing of that which is running along as good as any other theater company that I know of um, you, you're touring a show in a few months. Um, how are you feeling in your more producerial kind of um, the sphere of your world?
1: I've died as a producer um, I, I I kind of I, there were so many kind of ideas. Um, and my approach is so categorical that I've realized that, um, yes, I know that's not a word, but it should be, <laughs> um, that, it, that, um, that I need to reduce before I build out again. Mm. Um, so my primary motivators at a support, support emerging talent, provide, um, uh, pr- provide, um, provide, um, a cross-platform kind of um, arts hub eventually um, that supports emerging artists and exploits established ones. <laughs>
2: um,
1: and, um, you yeah, know, I've got a lot of writing projects, a lot of charity work, a lot of this, a lot of that, and a lot of the other. And none of it's, you know, since I've gotten back, I've had to take the work as well. I've been, I've been around the world since the unicycle ride for, for hipsters on a hipster hunt and molly's taken up six months of my life and um yeah i've done other bits and pieces here and there but i've found that i simply haven't had the time to kind of uh, channel and funnel all of my ideas that i've got properly so so i'm going through a reductionist phase after going through and after going through kind of a big thinking phase and now i'm just kind of bringing everything down to kind of really simple things and uh uh, at the moment, I'm putting a lot of all that extra stuff into a bag for later because um, I'm focusing on being a reductionalist. So at the moment, all I want to do is get this fucking work that I've got out of the way so that I can focus on my writing. Mm. Um, and I'm not producing anything at the moment. Um, the, my last kind of little producing thing finished yesterday. I got a band. I saw at a pub into a studio and um, supported them in that way. But um, yeah, until I can devote more time to it I've got I've got a rescue kind of for want of a better word I've got to get back to my charity um, and get it back to where it can be because there are certain things within that charity that only I can do mm. um, so I'm going to do that and focus on my writing and um, and go inward because because mm. I've just been focused too outward trying to help too many fuckers trying to be too many people too too much for too many people so I need to I need to go back and Find a cabin somewhere and lock myself away and recalibrate mm, and then ca- and then come back at it with a with a more defined kind of uh, tactic that won't um, that won't result in disappointment mm,
0: I think that's fucking great man mm. I really think that that like to actually because in doing that you're actually giving yourself that focus mm. um, instead of being. Trying to do too much for too many people. There's 10 things much.
1: I can do quite well that I know I want to do and that I will get around to doing. Mm. But I'm, I can't start that off by starting with all 10.
0: Mm. I think I think we as creative types often do that and build something and it starts out as something small mm. and then we build it out into this huge, gigantic mm. thing and suddenly it's bigger than fucking Ben. Ho yeah, exactly. And we're looking at it going, I don't know how to start yeah. this, so don't even bother. Yeah. Whereas if you just kind of reduced it. It's our job to back.
1: dream. We've got to do that big thinking stuff. Yeah.
0: But then you've got to be
1: able to get the funnel out. Yeah. So I'm kind of recalibrating. I just want to go and collect my head because I haven't had a chance to catch my breath for about five years. <laughs> yeah. Maybe four and a half years. Literally haven't had a chance to stop. And I've also a lot of my stuff I've been doing isn't truly my own. Mm. So I'm gonna go away, come back, and then get go hard on my own stuff and um and kind of use my network of of geniuses that i'm lucky to have around me Mm. to help me help me then um, kind of take it to the next level Mm. but yeah for the moment i'm out i mean i've got the appearance of being in but it's just not true it's a good illusion to have though yeah totally
0: (laughs) um the illusion of being busy is a very profound thing for the the app like the outside looking in.
1: Yeah, if you want, if you want, if you want to get someone to do something, give it to someone who pretends they're busy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you said before you're not a religious person. Do no. you believe in a god or a divinity or something higher no. than us?
1: I believe in love and life and this planet. Yeah.
0: I think it would be pretty. I good believe idea. in the
1: sky and the stars, and you know, there's, there's certainly stuff up there. Mm. Yeah. Do I believe in a divine being? No. Do I believe in a higher power? No.
0: Well, I think um, I think divinity can be just love in a pure. To be
1: honest, I do think heaven is on earth. I, I look around and I go, if this ain't the garden, you know, or if this ain't fucking heaven, mm. you are telling me there's a better place than this? Really? Would you want a better place? Hmm. It's right here in front of us, as far as I can tell. On Nick's the parents. The idea that there's something better somewhere else is an insult to what we have here. Mm. For me, you know, you know, I find that there's spirituality here, right here on Earth, in everyone I meet, you know, in the, in nature. So yeah, I I I I I can see why we'd need a God to explain all this. I definitely can see why we'd need one, because it does defy explanation, and without without a God, there's not many answers. <laughs> yeah mm. it's a tough one it's a tricky one i, I love religion and the values it promotes and I, res- and I respect religion and i'm really glad that religion's there as well but i don't believe it should be tax-free It's
2: mm.
0: a good way of putting it
1: mm. i believe that we we you know the, the church is a great thing and religion is wonderful it's awesome man it ain't for me but it's pretty good and and the values that it promotes are great as well um so I, i'm pro-religion um, and I'm not even anti-God, because I believe that anybody should have any God they like. It's just that it's just that I haven't had a beer with my God yet, because um, he never shows up. I keep expecting him to. Like I'll buy him a full strength. Yeah. It's not like I'll be like, oh man, I'm only buying him a light. Yeah. You know, I'd be full of respect. Unless he's driving, mate. He could have a fucking a fireball and a beer to chase. I'd buy him whatever he wanted. <laughs> Seriously, I'd buy him the whole bar.
0: Well, you're pretty generous with your buying of drinks for people. as Oh, it is. man. Uh, I I'd... could only imagine what you do for God. <laughs> right, they'd have to invent
1: a new liquor for that, man. Yeah. But wouldn't it be great to sit down and have a beer with him? I'd love to have it. Or mean, her. Or her. Sorry, that's sexist, isn't it? Well, that's because I've been brought up in a patriarchal society that has promoted God as white and male and bearded. Hmm. Um, so sorry for falling prey to fucking a stereotypes that have been a fucking... That I've been smashed around the head with, but you're right. She might be a, a midget um, with her a, with her with a little moustache, mm. um, little gypsy midget. Yeah, yeah, a gyp- <laughs> Um Well, on
0: that note, man, I think yeah. we're going to uh, going to wrap it up. But thank you so much for uh, for coming in and, and chewing the fat with me. And I'd love to get you to come in again at some point. And oh, I continue. don't think my
1: thoughts are valuable enough, but you know, no, uh, but thanks, but thanks for giving them the time.
0: No, it's my pleasure. What makes you silly, man?
1: What makes me silly? Yeah. Um, oh, what makes me silly?
0: Evidently that question has. Oh,
1: gee. The, yeah, just the word. Um, what makes me silly? When do I go silly? I tend to go silly when I see my friends. Mm. So my friends make me silly.
0: What do they... How do they make you silly?
1: No, just by fucking looking at me. Um, I I do get more immature and more silly when I, when I see a friend I haven't seen for a while, mm. g- generally speaking. Um Knowing I've got three and a half hours on a golf course with three friends and, and, that, and that everyone's phones are off and no one's going to interrupt takes me into the next level of silliness, for sure. <laughs> That's what I'm inclined to roll around in, in a bunker and speak
0: gibberish. <laughs> cool. Thanks, mate. Thanks, man. Cool. Well, in the wise words of Ralph Emerson, life is a journey, not a destination. And that's just something that I read on Twitter. So it makes me sound smart when I say it on a podcast like that. Uh, probably not many people know that better than Sam. Um, thanks for sticking around, friends. I know that was a pretty long episode. Um, I hope you're enjoying the raw format. You can probably tell by now that I just like to let the flow go. Uh, so next week's guest is uh, an outstanding stand-up comedian. She's been acting and working in comedy for about 10 years. Uh, and she used to put up with me on a daily basis uh, as my other housemate. Uh, coming up next, Tegan Higginbotham. See you all next week. Thank you very much.